Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. There's good news for California's almond growers. The 2018 crop now encompasses over 1 million acres, and this year's harvest will be the biggest ever, over 1.1 million metric tons of nut meat. But there's some not-so-good news. The ongoing tariff battle with China, which in the past imported 12% of California's total almond production. The cost of sending those nuts to China may be going up, way up. We have that report. Firefighters battling the 90,000-acre county fire that enveloped parts of Yellow and Napa counties have determined how that blaze started. It was an improperly installed electric fence. And if you're biting into a sweet, juicy pluotter aprium right now, we've got the backstory on how those plum apricot crosses were developed. We'll take a tour of Modesto-based Zager Genetics, all that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. There's good news for California's almond growers. The 2018 almond production figures from the USDA are forecasting 2.45 billion meat pounds. That's up 6.5% from May's subjective forecast and up 7.5% from last year's crop. Good news for California almond growers? In a normal year, yes. But growing and processing almonds are a big business here in California, a $5 billion industry. Almonds are California's number three ag product behind dairy and grapes. And that bountiful 2018 almond crop, though, has left California growers very nervous. A lot of those almonds head overseas each year. China alone buys 12% of California's almond production. And farmers are worried. Will the tariff war between the U.S. and China result in an additional 50% tariff on tree nuts? And that includes almonds. And as with any commodity, buyers will be searching for the lowest cost producer. That in turn could turn China into a buyer of almonds from elsewhere. And you thought California had a monopoly on almond production? Well, think again. Even though California does grow 10 times as many almonds as the next largest competitor, Spain, other countries who grow almonds are eyeing that potential Chinese market. It does concern the growers, it does concern the processors, it concerns everybody in the industry. That's Bruce Blodgett, San Joaquin County Farm Bureau representative, and he told KCRA News the sooner the government gets on solving this tariff crisis, the better for California's almond growers. Well, hopefully they, you know, work quickly and, and figure these things out now, uh, rather than wait until we have crop coming off and maybe uh, a more difficult time marketing it. Besides Spain, Iran, Morocco, Syria, Turkey, Italy, Australia, Algeria, and Tunisia have commercial almond production, and it's growing. Lower average prices than previously projected for just about every major crop. That's the consistent theme in Thursday's round of USDA crop reports. Main reasons, generally larger plantings for many crops and those Chinese tariffs. Soybeans showing the effects of both. First, USDA upping its production projection by 30 million bushels to 4.3 billion, reducing the export forecast by 250 million bushels because of the tariffs, increasing the ending stocks forecast by 190 million, slashing the projected average price 75 cents down to nine and a quarter a bushel, 15 cents less than the past season for corn. 14.2 billion bushel crop expected, 200 million more than the previous forecast. Analysts projecting record exports, but they did take a dime off the price projection now at 380 a bushel, still 40 cents better than this past season. Wheat. Surveys show a 6% smaller winter wheat crop than a year ago on the smallest harvested acreage ever, but spring wheat output could grow by 48% from a year ago, making all wheat stocks larger. Prices a dime lower than previously projected at an even $5. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. 
The county fire in Napa and Yolo counties has burned over 90,000 acres of rangeland used for grazing animals. The good news, 90% containment so far of that fire. Reports of damage are still being collected, but farmers of irrigated crops in the region say those crops should be safe. And CAL FIRE has determined the cause of the fire, an electric livestock fence that was improperly installed in Yolo County. The responsible party has been cited under the Public Resources Code, burning of lands of another, that according to CAL FIRE, wildfire responders urge farmers and residents to always follow proper installation and operation guidelines when installing or operating equipment that can cause a fire. Two dairy products on the list of U.S. exports to China now seeing increased tariffs are whole and skim milk powders. And USDA World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Seth Myers says that was included in the July World Supply and Demand Estimates and U.S. Dairy Export Forecast. When you think about it on a skim-solid basis, some challenges there in terms of exports, NDM and whey exports, our thoughts on exports of those products down a little bit in 18 and more sharply in 19, and that's the kind of stuff that China is having an impact on in terms of our exports for skim solid basis. Nonfat dry milk and dry whey product prices were lowered for 2018 and 19 from the previous month, due in part to both Chinese tariffs as well as increased production estimates. Yet year-over-year price changes for both dairy commodities indicate increases. Dry whey up a penny in 2019 and NDM up three cents for the same time period. Abroad Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The trucking business is changing from paper to electronic logs. Ag haulers have various exemptions, though, but one expired back in June. Chris Torres is a Calusa County farmer and trucker. He told the California Farm Bureau Federation that there are other exemptions, but the ag industry has special needs during harvest time when round-the-clock operations ensue. We need to continue support for our for the extra hours we can use during the seasonal work that we have. And uh, California lets us lets us have I'm, it's 120 hours in a week to work, and we need to have that during harvest because of the timely manner which the crops need to come in. Um, the ELD mandate is is it makes it more difficult for small guys like myself with five trucks to effectively run our run our trucks. The air mile exemption, what they're proposing and what the clarifications so far are, which can always change, but it's 150 nautical miles, which are 172 in regular miles. From where I'm at, I can go into Reno and stay underneath the exemption without having to have an electronic log. That that helps us because we don't have to, to have all the, the electronic stuff. It's just the more electronic stuff we have, the more problems you could possibly have. Again, recent clarifications issued by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration mentions that ag haulers are exempt from logging requirements if the shipping is within 150 air miles of a commodity. When one thinks of long-term issues in agriculture, they tend to gravitate on those that are broad and of higher profile trade, markets, climate, policy as examples. But as Iowa State University assistant professor and extension plant pathologist Aaron Mueller points out, especially in the case of young producers, this consideration should be equally, maybe more importantly, centered on their individual farm. One of the things that we talk about is what are the next issues in agriculture as far as, and I'm trying to push them to identify what's the next diseases, but more broadly, what's the next issues. That is because, in many ways, a producer's decisions are driven at the farm level. So, for example... There are some states that have nutrient reduction strategy in place. So 
So farmers need to be cognizant of trying to raise crops and maybe manage their nutrients in a little bit different way than they have in the past. Or obviously there's been a lot of chatter and rightfully so about herbicide resistant weed. And so there's been management strategies that have been in place that are sort of shifting because of herbicide resistant weeds becoming more and more problematic. Then comes decisions involving their crops, which includes present and future considerations. When I talk to farmers and they're thinking through what varieties they need and, and sort of the, they, they can look at the lay of their land, they know what their soil quality is or their soil type is. Usually it's local enough, there's enough breeding companies that have local breeding efforts that are going to have varieties that will, will be adapted to the local soil type. And in terms of planting formations, Mueller says row crop growers may consider if they need to plant seed that is both herbicide resistant and can handle more narrow rows. Because I have some herbicide resistant weeds and I bought a new planter, I'm going to go from 30 on to 15 or maybe even more narrow. So suddenly it's equipment and sort of the bigger agronomic decisions that are going to drive sort of the variety of selection. One trend Mueller notes producers are expanding to address long-range farm level issues is diversification. A lot of times you're going to get farmers that are going to diversify the maturity group that they put out there, for example. So some of them are going to push a little bit longer maturity groups and maybe go after a little bit more yield, but those are going to be at risk for early frost. Or some farmers are going to adjust, plant. some are going to get out there and plant as early as they possibly can and hit the seeds with as much seed treatment and protection as they can, while others, they might save some fields that are a little bit wetter or something. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Corn and potatoes are being harvested in San Joaquin County. Alfalfa is being cut. Summer beans and cotton are irrigated in Tulare County. Alfalfa was irrigated, cut, and baled. Rice is developing well in the Sacramento Valley. It'll begin heading soon. Grape bunches are beginning to improve in color. Grape vineyards were irrigated. Stone fruit orchards were sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning of stone fruit is ongoing. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, figs, and plums are being harvested. The Valencia orange harvest continues in Tulare County. Citrus packers were color sorting as citrus greening was more prevalent due to high temperatures. Blueberry harvest is winding down in most of Tulare County. Almond, walnut, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue. Melons were progressing well in San Joaquin County, and they're ready for harvest. In San Joaquin County, melons were progressing well and were ready for harvest, while sweet corn is being harvested as well. Cucumbers, eggplants, peppers, squash, and zucchini are being harvested in the Central Valley. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture continues to deteriorate with the warm, dry weather. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pastures are in poor to fair conditions, as well as being quite dry. Rangeland conditions were better at higher elevations, Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Bees are very active in sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 2018 is looking to be a great year for California's processing tomato growers. They report they'll have or will have contracts for 11.9 million tons of processing tomatoes. This is a 14.3% increase over the final 2017 production total. 
Fresno County remains the top California county in contracted planted acreage of processing tomatoes with 75,000 acres. Yolo, Kings, Merced, and San Joaquin make up the remaining top five counties. Those five counties account for 76% of the 2018 total contracted planted acreage of processing tomatoes here in California. Now that the Senate passed its version of the legislation, the American Farm Bureau Federation says it's time to work through the challenges the Farm Bill poses to farmers in conference. American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval says the organization looks forward to working with lawmakers to address the challenges. There's some obstruction in there to make it more difficult for our farmers to get risk management tools and payment limits and want to make sure that we take care of that. Duval says the development of the Farm Bill has been very positive. Farm Bureau's very pleased that crop insurance is included in both the House and Senate versions of the bill. It is the main risk management tool that our farmers use. Of course, back in February during the budget process, we were able to take care of some of the cotton problems and some of the dairy problems. So we were glad to get that behind us. And of course, uh, streamlining some conservation programs, a little increase in research and development to keep us on the cutting edge. Duval says that it's paramount to have a complete farm bill before current legislation expires in the fall. Farmers and ranchers need to engage with lawmakers about the farm bill to help it move forward. We need a farm bill because we're in very bad economic times in farmland. We need to have some certainty in our future by having a farm bill passed and passed on time. Chad Smith, Washington. Where are we with getting a new North American Free Trade Agreement worked out? Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters in Pullman, Washington, things are coming along more slowly than he had hoped, but... We're hopeful, actually, we can get a uh, renewed NAFTA with Mexico done uh, quickly. Uh, We believe that we've got many of the agreements in principle there. But Mexico has just elected a new president. He won't take office until December 1st. Reports are that he's in favor of continuing negotiations between now and then, but he wants to be kept in the loop. Sonny Perdue said he believes the plan is to get the basic agreement made with Mexico. And then move to Canada and resolve the uh, remaining issues we have with Canada. So we would love to have a renewed NAFTA as quickly as possible. But no one is putting a definite time on when that will be. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Good news out of Los Angeles, the medfly has been eradicated there. Again, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, the USDA, and the L.A. County Ag Commissioner's Office have eradicated a Mediterranean fruit fly infestation. It was centered around the Sun Valley neighborhood. That's in northern Los Angeles County. It was a 129-square-mile quarantine that began back in August of 2017. A total of 42 flies and well over 100 larvae were detected, including a breeding colony. The CDFA used the release of sterile male medflies at a minimum rate of 500,000 flies per square mile per week as the mainstay of its eradication measures for this pest. Additionally, properties within 200 meters of detection sites were treated with spinosad. That's an organic formulation which originates from naturally occurring bacteria in soil in order to eliminate any mated females as well as reduce the density of the population. To further reduce the population, properties within 100 meters of breeding populations were subject to host fruit removal to eliminate eggs and larvae. During this process, over 115,000 pounds of fruit were removed from over 750 properties. 
Why the big concern over the medfly? It's known to target more than 250 types of fruits and vegetables, potentially causing severe impacts on California's agricultural products as well as backyard gardens. Damage occurs when the female lays eggs inside the fruit. The eggs hatch into maggots and tunnel through the flesh of the fruit, making it unfit for consumption. If you are a stakeholder in the Brazilian ag sector these days, there is plenty to celebrate. There's a lot of opportunities in Brazil. They have two crops a year. They have good weather. They have tremendous resources and land. Their exports just continue to grow from year to year. Yet as the Agriculture Department's Minister Counselor in Brazil, Clay Hamilton, points out, with that nation seen as both a competitor in U.S. export markets and collaborator in U.S. market development and ag research opportunities, it is uncertain where Brazil may be as a global ag leader, say, in over 20 years. Getting a better idea of Brazil's position is the subject of a recent study. There's not a lot of countries that can say they can expand their agricultural frontier, that it will make a big impact on the supply of food. Texas A&M professor Luis Rivera joins me, Rod Bain, for a look at Brazilian agriculture in the year 2040 and what it may mean for the U.S. ag sector in this edition of Agriculture USA. Brazil, in the context of global agriculture, is a growing export competitor to the U.S. Talking about competition, Brazil is a major competitor of the things that we export the most. According to Texas A&M University professor Luis Ribeira, but USDA Minister Counselor to Brazil, Clay Hamilton, says that nation also has a strong partnership with our country in many ag-related areas. We share a lot of the same issues, the same concerns, the same pests, and we have a very collaborative relationship in research. At any one time, there's about 400 ongoing joint research projects between ARS, universities, and others, and their counterparts in Brazil. Hamilton, in fact, believes that the future of world agriculture is the U.S. and Brazil growing together. And we can't do that unless we have a good understanding of where Brazil's going and what drives Brazil. That is what led a group of USDA agencies to partner with Texas A&M University's Center for North American Studies to develop a report looking at Brazil's ag future. Brazil 2040 not only provides a forecast of Brazilian growth in areas such as ag infrastructure, increased commodity production, and global food distribution, but studies how that could impact U.S. farm exports and our nation's position in global markets going forward. Luis Ribeira heads the study and says the first observation he took away from it was that Brazil is among just a handful of countries worldwide that can expand their ag frontier and in turn impact global food supplies. On top of that, they can really double their agricultural frontier, their cropland, without cutting any tree. Thanks to technological advances, which has also contributed to significant crop yield increases over the last four decades. Now, in terms of Brazilian ag production in the context of U.S. farm exports, yes, they are a competitor for major commodities such as corn and soybeans. In fact, in 2017, Brazil exported more soybeans than the U.S. Yet, Ribeira says if you break that down by global markets for each nation... Brazil, about over 90% of what they export is to two countries, two areas, China and also European Union. That's not diversified. When you look at the U.S., we export a lot, but we're a little bit more diversified. Depending on just two countries, it's not a concern now, but it's something that you need to be looking up as well and try to diversify your markets. 
So looking forward with projections of Brazilian crop exports, Ribera says USDA 10-year forecasts have corn and soybean exports not only increasing significantly, but above other industry forecasts. Part of that has been fueled by expanding ag infrastructure, rails, ports, roads. The chief economist of Brazil's Association of Vegetable and Oil Industries, Daniel Furlon, says the significant growth in bean exports over the last two decades has revealed shortfalls in that nation's ag infrastructure system. We didn't have enough resources to invest in infrastructure. Yet he adds, We expect that all infrastructure to be ready in 10 to 20 years, and Brazil, when that happens, will have full services at competitive prices. Which should make Brazilian producers more efficient. Luis Ribeira, however, notes the U.S. has export potential into Brazil with other major commodities, such as wheat. Most of the wheat that they get, they get it from uh, Mercosur countries. Largest one, that's Argentina. They get quite a bit from Paraguay. But every now and then, we play a major role into the Brazil wheat import market. Ribera adds that other factors, such as political stability, as well as U.S. and the global farm financial situation, will also play a part in what Brazil's ag economy and its relationship with our country from an ag perspective will look like over 20 years from now. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The threat of a fatal plant disease has renewed interest in efforts to develop dwarfed citrus trees. University of California specialists have been studying the smaller trees at a research station in the Central Valley. If successful, the dwarf citrus trees could be grown under protective screening, and that would keep the insects out that carry the plant disease known as citrus greening disease, or HLB. Researchers started new studies this spring on the dwarf tree's water efficiency. You may be very familiar with that famous plum apricot cross, the pluot, or perhaps the aprium. And more and more growers in California are very familiar with the Independence Almond. All three of those and a lot more were developed by Zager Genetics, a Modesto institution since the 1950s. Floyd Zager and his family have been developing and hybridizing fruits and nuts for over 50 years now. Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery recently got a behind-the-scenes tour of this most famous family in fruit as they create new varieties the old-fashioned way, hybridization and hard work. I'm Tom Spellman with Dave Wilson Nursery, and we're here at Zager Genetics in Modesto, California. We're going to talk to some of the folks here about how they hand-pollinate and create hybrids of, of new fruit tree varieties. I'm out here in the field at Zager's this morning with Juana and Elena, and what they're doing is a pollinization project. So they have four different types of pollen that they're hand pollinating this plum variety with to determine what is the best pollinator to be used for commercial production or for, for backyard growing of this variety. So this, this will allow them to determine which variety works best. So the one that sets the most fruit from the hand pollinization project will become the recommended pollinator for this variety in the future. This, uh, this process is done in isolation in this um, tent structure so that no other uh, bee activity would contribute pollen that could uh, change the percentage that they would see on any one of these varieties. So we want to make sure that this is done in isolation so nothing else contributes uh, pollen to the to the maternal tree. I'm here this morning with Tracy Betancourt. She is Floyd Zager's granddaughter. 
and Tracy is picking flowers to be used for the male pollen that they're going to use to cross-pollinate maternal trees in the greenhouse today. So Tracy, at what, at what stage you're looking for this, what we call popcorn stage, where yes. the blooms are just are. starting to show some color, but they're not really open yet. Correct. And that reason is because you hope that the, um, the anther is mature enough. Because if you get it too early, like this, for example, with hardly any pink, the anther is probably not mature enough, so it won't be any good. And when they're completely open, it's already it's already spent yes yeah so this is something that you really have to do every day that you're that you're hand pollinating you have to collect fresh pollen every morning yes, in order to do that yes it's a very short window you know fruit you can let slide a little bit and you can kind of guess but flowers they're either there or they're not absolutely kind of all or nothing possible. well it's just amazing to think that you have to come out here every single day and just hand pick flowers in order to in order to do this it's such a long lengthy process that you have to go through to create these hybrids but when we start tasting fruit in the summer, we figure out it's, it's really worth it. Yeah. So you basically just snip that flower bud in half and, uh, and collect the, the section that holds the pollen. This is not a genetic modification. This is, this is a, an old-fashioned hand-pollinated hybrid. The way, the way that it would actually happen in, in nature had those two trees had the opportunity to overlap. So I'm here this morning uh, uh, in one of the Zager greenhouses with Leith Gardner. Leith is uh, Floyd's daughter. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been involved in the business, Leith? Well, as soon as I was born. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You, probably well, when you were writing a... nurseries, we had uh, containers. And as soon as we were able to help out in the field, we did whatever was necessary. So, so we were physically capable of doing. This is a, a lifetime venture for you. Yes. You've been doing it all your life, which a lot of us in the nursery business mm -hmm. have been doing similar. But, you know, we're, we're looking at hybridization this morning. We're looking at uh, how the varieties are hand pollinated using the pollen we harvested earlier today and pollinating these, these trees in an isolated condition. This is a really nice example of a genetic dwarf it's either a peach or a nectarine or a hybrid of the two, peach. So uh, they've done a lot of work for the home garden market over the last few years with hybridizing some wonderful new genetic dwarf varieties. And, and when I say genetic, I really mean hybrid. These are not genetically modified. They're just hybrids of, of peach and nectarine. And this is a variety that will grow on its own and attain no more than a height of about six feet maximum over a 15 or 20 or even 30 year period of time. So these are strictly being hybridized for the home garden market and not as Correct. a commercial product. So well, eventually the, a lot of the commercial growers would like to get the size of the tree down, but I don't think the genetic dwarfs are gonna do it because there's too much leaf coverage. Yeah. We don't get the color that is necessary for a commercial product, but we are looking for definitely smaller genetic dwarfs for the home garden with better flavor and something that's a little more unique than the old ones that are out there now. Right, right. And, and you know, there have been varieties around for many, many years and most of them of marginal fruit quality. So Correct. it's really nice to see that you're able to improve some of the fruit qualities on these. Mm -hmm. we, have, we have four varieties now um, in an evaluation program. In fact, one of them we released this year, which was the new um, uh, Nectacot. Mm -hmm. It was a white-fleshed uh, nectarine that actually has some apricot parentage. And Correct. That seems to be a great variety, and, and we have three others that uh, we'll be trialing in, in several different locations this mm -hmm. year. So, 
uh, I'm really excited about all the new, you know, genetic dwarf combinations that you're working with. And would would you say that this is something that maybe you'll you'll come up with uh, uh, a strain that may be um, a little wider headed or a little more open centered that may actually, you know, w eventually work into commercial well, we are uh, adaptation. Looking for something like that. Um, whether this specific one would do it, I don't think so, because all the branches are going straight up the middle. But uh, right. we are looking for those that have lost some of that vertical growth habit yeah. and um, has a little bit more so it will branch out sideways without a lot of pruning. Right, so a little more wide-headed. You know, you're actually kind of breeding a little bit of the, of the dwarf character back out of them, you Correct. know, so that you can get a little bit more size. And Correct. And with the fruit being so close together on these, it definitely takes a lot of thinning to get a good piece of quality piece of fruit. Right, they produce in clusters, sometimes Correct. four, five, six in a cluster. And Correct. you want to thin all those clusters down to one. I mean, look at the, each one of these branches is just, well, it's just every, every flower buds all the way up the branch at every, at every node. More, yes. Yeah. It usually produces also flower buds. So when you have the brachitic dwarfs or this type of thing, you just get masses of fruit on Exactly. It. So, I mean, this this branch right here, 18 inch long branch, probably has 40 flowers on it. If, I mean, if half of those actually set a fruit, you could have 20 fruit on that one little branch. And Correct. And they will be all little. If you want fruit size, you, you would want two fruit on that branch. So, maybe, yes. Yeah, or maybe one. Yeah. So, you know, thinning. With the size and the quality and the flavor, it um, you need to definitely reduce the competition from the other fruit. And let them grow. Absolutely. You know, and thinning is something we always emphasize and, and you know, this is a great example to show how important that would be. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 let's look at hybridization. So, Tracy, we've been, yes. uh, we've been out in the orchard. We were collecting pollen. We um, uh, worked, worked with your grandfather to separate the pollen from the flowers. So, kind of explain to us what's, uh, what's going on here at this point. These are our, the barrels. These are what we call our mother stock. And what she's doing right now, she's emasculating. So she's taking everything off except for the pistol. So she's ripping off the petals and everything. But as you can see, the little pistols everywhere is what she's leaving because that's what will then hand pollinate. So you're just, just leaving the exposed pistol yeah, and that's just it. Just leaving the exposed pistol. And then, so this one you can see has been pollinated from the 16th to the 22nd. So this, this tree's already been worked yes. five times. Yes. And we're doing it doing it here again now. Yeah. And so what's in the barrel is this number and it's a peach and it was crossed with this. So then then taken, you can see in here is the smashed pollen. Mm -hmm. And they have the little brush and then they go through and they hand. So just like a little almost like a little makeup yep. brush. The yeah. Eyeshadow brush. Right. So this this is your this is your maternal parent. Yes. And then this is this is the, the, the male pollen that's, that's yes. being So that's the male in. pollen that's putting onto the female. And, and you've, you know, you've calculated strategically what these two varieties are. Yes. And you're, you're doing these crosses for a specific reason. So you're looking for an end result. Yes, you're looking for, for an or, early bloom yes. or a large size fruit or, or, flavor a, or a flavor or a color character. Yes. So all of these crosses are, are calculated and, and then they're covered up with a with a Tyvek or a no, a, just the plums are covered up. Oh, so every tree is not covered. The self sterile. No, the every self, tree is just not self sterile. Okay, just self okay. But at at this point, once the pollen is added to these varieties, there's no chance that they're going to pollinate with anything else. Flowers basically gone 
and you know you're, you've calculated yeah, exactly handled. what goes into the crops. Yes, yes, it's a very controlled environment. Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery continues his tour of Zager Genetics in Modesto. And Tom talks with Leith Gardner, Floyd Zager's daughter, who's been involved in the nursery business since, well, day one. Floyd Zager has been an institution in the development of hybrid fruits and nuts since the 1950s. Floyd is still alive and in his 90s, he's turned over most of the work to the rest of his family, children, grandchildren. We pick up the conversation that Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery is having with the Zager family about how they develop and hybridize all their award-winning fruit and nut varieties, including the Independence Almond. Leith Gardner is Floyd Zager's daughter, and she tells Tom Spellman a little bit about the history and more about the hybridization work that goes on at Zager Genetics. Well, I just, I absolutely love this old-fashioned philosophy on hybridization. It's just, uh, you know, a wonderful way to create some fantastic new varieties. And you guys, your dad started this, was it 60 years ago? About 60 years ago, yeah. So, you know, you have 60 years worth of, of germplasm that you're working with. And, you know, it just seems to me, I, I've been I've been coming to Zager walkthroughs on and off for over 20 years now, and it just seems to me that every year things get a little better and a little better, and there's just well, that's always new and yeah. improved varieties. That's yeah. what we're striving for on, on a lot of these varieties. As you say, we've evaluated them. We look for varieties that say have everything, every good quality you can think of, but maybe not enough color or not enough bricks. So then we go through on the varieties we've been evaluating and look for those that, depending on the maturity time we want to try and reach, um, pick those that have better color or better sugar and combine the two together. So Absolutely. Doing the better size with the better color. So the end result of, of what we're doing here today is going to be what you would call an F1 hybrid. Yes. It's a simple, you know, male pollen to a female flower. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're going to grow on that, that fruit and evaluate that fruit for its character. So. Well, the what? only thing that's going to change is the embryo. Right. The fruit on this tree is well, no, exactly. the same as the Exactly. You're, you're, yeah. you're going to get a change in, in the seedling that comes Correct. from that fruit. Yes. So how many um, stages of hybridization have some of these varieties gone through over the years? Are you at F6, F8, F10s? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some of these things have been evaluated a dozen different times and you're going, yeah, that's almost what we want, but we don't really have quite the color that we want. We don't really have quite the size that we want. We'd rather have this a, a freestone instead of a clingstone or, sure. or whatever. So you go back in and you hybridize again. Or you hybridize one of the seedlings from that mother. Right, right. Just to try and change that, that characteristic when you, again. When you look at the pedigrees when we're going through, sometimes you'll see that... Um, You've been selecting open pollinated seedlings maybe six times from the one cross we're making here. Right. Because every year the seedling is improved. And so you make it a selection and then you turn around and you pre-cross that with what the new trends are, or the new chilling requirements are, or things like that that need to be improved upon. Because with all the climate changing and everything that it's necessary to find varieties that are very adaptable. Sure, sure. So you're looking for early bloomers for low chill, late mm -hmm. bloomers for high Correct. chill, late season fruit varieties trying to extend out the cherry Correct. season or the plum season. So genectarines, everything. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I, I have to tell you, you know, I, I mean, I just, I every time I make a trip and come and visit Zagers, whether it's a fruit walkthrough or for something like this, I mean, as a, 
somebody that's been in the horticultural industry for 40 years, this is this to me is like a trip to Disneyland. <laughs> it's it's a lot of painstaking hand labor, but um, some of the results have been very good. Very good for the industry. Very good for the consumer. Absolutely, um, your your results speak for themselves. So that was really a great visit that we had with Zager Genetics. Every time I go over there, I learn something new and I'm just fascinated with the amount of effort that they put into hybridizing new varieties. And we've at Dave Wilson Nursery have been working with Zagers for almost the entire run of the nursery for at least 50 years. Zagers has come up with some wonderful varieties over the years. The one uh, that I'm standing next to right here is one of their first interspecific introductions. It's Dapple Dandy Pluot. It was the first one on the market. It's the one that they called Dinosaur Egg early on and it's still one of my favorite pieces of fruit to eat in midsummer. So they've been hybridizing and rehybridizing and rehybridizing again for decades now and I hope it sheds a little bit of light on the amount of effort that it takes to, to produce some of these interspecific varieties. It's not just throw a seed in the ground and, and sell a tree. It's, it's all about time. It takes literally 15 years to put a variety from the, the pollinization process into its final evaluation stages and actually get it on the market. So a lot of effort, a lot of people rely on what happens at, at Zagers to make their living. Floyd Zager is, is a genius. Floyd, what Floyd Zager has been able to do over the years and now with his family carrying on behind him, we need, we need to respect that and we need to just be thankful for what he's produced and what he is allowing us all to enjoy. So the next time you eat a pluot or an aprium or a nectaplum or a, a pluary, a cherry plum hybrid, just think of Floyd and think of all the effort that's gone into producing these hybrids over the years. That was Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery. If you want to see this hybridization process in action, visit the YouTube page for Dave Wilson Nursery and then click on the video about Zager Genetics. And now... Let the rousing begin! Yes, thus usually begins the yearly Golden Raspberry Awards show, awards given to the past year's worst movies and such, and this will tie in later, but we're not at the awards. We're out here at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market right off the mall in Washington, D.C. We're under the Veg University... Oh, yes, tent. I call it the Vegucation Tent. We're here with Vegu... Yes, a professor, Kayla Johnson. Yes, I've just given you an honorary professorship. I don't know what to say. I, I know. Try to hold back the tears. Emotional moment there <laughs> for you. Now, today, your lecture here at Veggie is on that great food, the... Raspberry. Yeah, well said. And, Professor, what deep scientific knowledge will you be sharing with folks here today? Raspberries are berries. Bye. Wow. Okay, you heard it first here. Uh, of course, raspberries are an ancient food. Archaeologists have found evidence that cavemen and women were eating raspberries two and a half million years ago. Today, raspberries are the third most popular berry in the United States after strawberries and blueberries. Consumption is up nearly 500% since the year 2000. And every day, Kayla, someone new decides to try fresh raspberries. One thing you say we need uh, to know about them, raspberries are picked when they're ripe. They don't have a long shelf life. So at the store, Kayla, what do we look forward to? make sure that we don't get raspberries that are already a little too far gone. You'll want to look for brightly colored berries, 
that look dry, not mushy in the containers. They should look plump, and the containers should not be stained. And they should be stained in different colors because raspberries come in several designer colors. Red, of course. But they also come in purple and a golden yellow. Oh, yeah, and you've got some here black. Now, uh, once you get them home, Kayla, you say uh, they'll last only about two to three, maybe four days in the fridge. However, you can freeze them. They'll keep for six months or so. So I'm looking at one of these here. You know, I've noticed each one of these has a hole in it. The hole that you see in the berry is actually where it was holding on to the stem. Uh, yeah, but it looks like to me maybe you could like stuff it uh, like an olive with something, you know? Ooh, you could. It's a good idea. Yeah, well, it turns out a celebrity already thought of it. This just can't be summer love, you see. Justin Timberlake there posted a little video online. He's holding a raspberry in one hand, blueberry in the other, and he says... Is it a coincidence that the blueberry fits in the raspberry perfectly? <laughs> I think not. But if you're looking for some really good recipes using raspberries, go online to What's Cooking USDA. Now, back to where we started. Somehow, sometime in the past, the name raspberry got connected with a couple of things. First, Kayla, uh, you go ahead. I'm not good at it. Well, good enough, though. And then also from that came the term we used to describe when people harass and rudely put people down. And when you do that, you're razzing them. But don't let that keep you from enjoying... Raspberries. That's right. So... Let the razzing begin. Yes, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.